so many women, you reach 50, 52 years of age, and hot flashes are, for many people, part of that menopausal transition. And when you go to the doctor, the doctor is going to say, well, we have a treatment, but the medicines increase your cancer risk and they increase the risk of heart problems and maybe dementia. And it just doesn't sound like something you want to jump into. So what about food? We recently completed a research study in which we tested food choices to see how they would affect hot flashes. And we hit on a combination that worked really well. It knocked out 84% of the moderate to severe hot flashes. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world. I want to say hello to the Exam Roomies listening today in Portugal and in Iceland. And I also want to say a special thank you to everyone listening in Trinidad and Tobago for making the Exam Room the number one nutrition podcast in the country. This is episode 89 of season four, number 284 overall. And our top question today, what foods can help with hot flashes? We've talked a lot recently about the connection between hormones and your diet, thanks to the groundbreaking WAVE study. But today we are going to be expanding the scope of our conversation and talking about some other options that you can pile on your plate that might just help. And helping us answer your questions is the author of Your Body Imbalance, Dr. Neil Barnard is here. And we're going to be opening up the doctor's mailbag in just a minute. A mailbag that is stuffed with all of your messages and emails looking for a little health and nutrition advice. We have questions today about diet and fertility, about fat and hormones, and even about how food can affect your skin. Specifically, we're going to be talking about psoriasis. And there are a lot more questions covering a lot of other ground in there. But before we dive into the mailbag, I want to take a moment to tell you about the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Their support of the Exam Room Podcast and the Physicians Committee is helping to raise our health IQs and making this episode possible. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse. You can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I. TERfund.org. It is time now to raise our health IQs and acquire some of that sweet nutrition knowledge. Let's open up the doctor's mailbag and welcome in Dr. Neil Barnard. My friend, it is so good to see you again. Good to see you, Chuck. By the way, before we jump into questions, I want to congratulate you, Chuck. Um, the downloads you have had, you are just making history. It's fantastic to see what you're doing, not just how many people are downloading you, but how far and wide, really worldwide, they're doing. So anyway, congratulations, Chuck. Thank you very much. Uh, you, you humble me. Um, it, this show truly is a global phenomenon, and I'm so proud that we are able to touch people all over the world and get them the answers that they need to improve their own health. And that is our mission today. So let's go ahead and dive right into that mailbag. Are you ready? You bet. All right. The first question comes to us from Gemma, and Gemma is wondering what foods can help with hot flashes? Great, great, great question. Uh, so many women, you reach 50, 52 years of age, 
And hot flashes are for many people part of that menopausal transition. Now, not everybody has them and not everybody has them very bad, but a lot of women do. And when you go to the doctor, the doctor is going to say, well, we have a treatment, but the medicines increase your cancer risk and they increase the risk of heart problems and maybe dementia. And it, it just doesn't sound like something you want to jump into. So what about food? We recently compete, completed a research study in which we tested uh, food choices to see how they would affect hot flashes. And we hit on a combination that worked really well. It knocked out 84% of the moderate to severe hot flashes, which was great. And what did it consist of? Three things, completely plant-based diet. We're getting away from the animal products. Number two, keep oils really low. Number three, add some soybeans to your diet. And when I say soybeans, the best ones seem to be the uh, regular mature soybeans. You can buy them on Amazon and they're available organic, non-GMO and so forth at about a half cup per day. Uh, by the way, for people who are a little nervous about soybeans, soybeans have been shown to reduce cancer risk and even for people who had cancer in the past to improve their survival. So soybeans seem to be a good thing, but that's the combination. Um, give it a little time to work. If you have um, been on a maybe a kind of meaty American diet, give it maybe six, seven weeks to work. If you're already on a really clean vegan diet, the results seem much faster, but, uh, but that's the combination. Plant-based diet, vegan diet, no animal products, minimizing oily foods. So guacamole and peanut butter and so forth. And third, a half a cup of cooked soybeans every day. And so that is the short answer. But the cool thing about food and hot flashes, Dr. Barnard, is you and dietitian extraordinaire Lee Crosby are teaming up for a fight food with hot or fight hot flashes with food uh, four week series. Can you tell us a little bit about what you guys have planned? Yeah, it's a great thing. It's actually starting uh, next week. It's starting on the 9th, November 9th. And what we're going to do is over four weeks, help people who are eager but nervous about changing their diet to see how easy it is. We'll walk you through it and we'll get you started and give you a chance to, to, um, to weigh in with questions. And, and we just completed a four-week series. It was phenomenal. We had hundreds of women participating and we're going to be doing it all again uh, starting next week. And I love the way that the series has been laid out. I mean, you start with the science and why food actually is beneficial here. And then you get started on the, the hot flash uh, fighting diet, you know, how to get going on that, some tips for making the switch. Because in all honesty, Dr. Barnard, a switch to a plant-based diet is a major change for so many women. Um, and and to be able to help walk them through that process, I think that that's, that's really a, a big, big, big thing. Yeah, it is. And what we want to do is take something that, that, just as you said, Chuck, it feels like you're going to make a big switch, but we're going to try to make it really simple. And sometimes it's just little modifications. Instead of ground beef sauce on my spaghetti, I'll put the tomato sauce on, or instead of the meat chili, I'll have the bean chili. Sometimes it's really simple things like that. And other times we'll talk about new products you might want to try or new things to think about at restaurants. But it's, uh, I have to say, really empowering because in the study that I mentioned, which was published in the journal Menopause, it, we weren't only able to really knock out the, the bad hot flashes for people, and which by the way means you feel better during the day, sleep better at night, 
but the average woman lost about eight pounds in 12 weeks and they just felt better than they had felt in years. And so we'll walk you through it and it's all free. Yeah, and you'll also hear from some of the women who have improved uh, their hot flashes by changing their diet, saw these things firsthand, experienced them firsthand. So uh, you know that the proof is in the plant-based pudding, my friends. So sign up. There's a link right now in the uh, comments and the chat for you. Click right on that and register today. Absolutely free. Four-week series kicking off November 9th. Um, we have a question uh, that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with what it is we're talking about right now. This one is from Teresa, and she is wondering how much fat is essential for hormone production? Ah, great, great, great question. Um, you know, because we're cutting fat a lot in these um, diets that we use, and not just for hot flashes, but for weight loss, for diabetes, for lowering cholesterol, getting the grease out of your diet is a good thing. And, and you might be thinking, well, how much do I need to have in my diet? Um, and to make it, let me answer practically, and then I'll give you some numbers. The, the practical answer is you don't need animal fat at all. So when you get away from the beef fat and chicken fat and fish oil and so forth, that's step one. And then, but you also don't need to be adding adding oils when you cook, whether it's olive oil or corn, or corn oil or any kind of oil. Um, and you, you also don't need to have super fatty products like guacamole or, or say peanut butter. And you do need some fats in your diet. And there are a couple of them, uh, alpha-linolenic acid, linoleic acid. Uh, this will not be on the test, but your body uses them to make uh, a variety of compounds that are part of body chemistry. But you only need tiny traces, a couple of percentage of your overall calories from these fats will, will do it. So let's say we take some broccoli, send it to a lab, and they'll say, well, there's actually some, na some natural fat in the broccoli. Not a lot, but a few percent of its calories come from fat. Send a bean, send an apple. There are traces of fats in all these foods, and that's really sufficient for the body's needs. If you added it up over the course of a day, if you're not adding fat to the foods that you eat, you are going to be starting off with, say, uh, an omnivore's diet of maybe 100 grams of fat, and you can knock that down to 20 or 30 grams really pretty easily. And that allows the waistline to trim and makes you feel a lot better. There you go. You know, uh, we were talking about soy, and of course, that sets off the soy alarm. We we have a lot of soy questions here. So let's take one uh, from Zabibi here at 12.02. Uh, wondering whether soy milk has the same effect as soybeans because they're not a big fan of soybeans. Okay. Um, well, first of all, let's talk about how, how we're going to cook the soybeans. Um, and, and just try this as an experiment if you would like. You can, by the way, you can order them on Amazon uh, or you'll, you'll find them in health food stores. The brand that we used in the WAVES study, the Women's Study for the Alleviation of Vasomotor Symptoms, the WAVES study, we use Laura brand soybeans. They're non-GMO. They're on Amazon, but you'll see lots of competing brands. They're fine. Um, get them home. Put them in your Instant Pot or whatever pressure cooker you have. Cook them for 40 minutes. There should be no al dente beans. If they crunch when you, when you are eating them, you didn't cook them long enough. They should come out and you use them like, um, sort of like pine nuts. Add them to a salad, add them to a soup. And uh, you can portion them out and have a half a cup each day or even just a quarter cup twice a day. Very easy to do. Now, if you're traveling, go one step further. And that's after they're cooked. 
put them in the oven on a baking sheet about 350 degrees for an hour and that roasts them and once they're nice and dry it's like a dry roasted peanut and you can salt them up or whatever you want to and same story about a half a half a cup uh, per day so that makes it um, uh, really easy to, to, to like the soybeans and your question was well can I just do it with soy milk sure you can but to get the isoflavones, which are the magical natural compounds in the soy, to get the same amount of isoflavones from soy milk that you would get from a half a cup of cooked mature soybeans, you'd have to drink two quarts of soy milk. So that's the reason why we're thinking that the mature soybeans are a little bit better. And, and by the way, edamame is good too. It's, it's, edamame is the baby soybean and uh, they're okay but the mature soybeans have more of the isoflavones in it. Uh, so from soy milk, we also have a follow-up question here from Sally wondering about soybean sprouts. Are they a good option? Sure, you know, all of the soy products have some natural isoflavones in them. These are what are believed to be the cancer preventers and they also seem to be the hot flash medicine and there are traces of them in other beans too. Do you know if they're okay to eat raw or she's wondering if that's another vegetable that should be eaten only when it's cooked? I, I don't know the answer to that. Let me, let me look at that. Typically I like, to, typically I like to suggest that people might cook their uh, sprouts and things like that, but let me, let me look at that and maybe we can come back to that next week. Fair enough. Uh, let's take a question here from Jessica. She writes, since soy helps hormones with menopause, would it also help a teenager with painful heavy periods? Oh my goodness sakes, thank you for asking that. that. That is actually the question that got us going in this direction in the first place. It was more than 20 years ago, I was sitting at this desk and a young woman called me up who had terrible menstrual cramps. And a lot of women have cramps, but for maybe one in 10, they're pretty much off the scale. I can't get to work or go to school today. And the, we ended up doing a research study on this very question. And what really helped there was two things, completely vegan diet, no animal products at all. And let me, let me emphasize, really reducing oils, all the oils. I don't mean just animal fat, but keeping oils really, really low. That includes the guacamole and all the things we might love, but keeping oils low is a big part of it. In that study, we did not add soybeans. And I honestly have never seen a trial to see if the soybeans would really help with that symptom in the way that we used it. Um, those two steps alone, vegan diet and very low fat, for many women help reduce the menstrual pain's intensity, duration, for some it just knocks it out, and also the PMS symptoms like bloating or water retention or sometimes moodiness improve as well. If you would like to try adding soybeans to a low fat vegan diet for that, um, that's new territory for us, but you could certainly do it. And you could see if that augments the the uh, result. If you do, let us know what you, what uh, what your experience. Let's go ahead and take a question now from Anastasia. This one she sent in uh, before the show today. It's a good one. She wants to know: Does diet affect fertility? She says she and her husband have had multiple rounds of IVF, but they uh, still have not had any luck conceiving, despite the fact that they're both relatively young. Yes. Uh, first of all, I'm sorry that you've had to struggle with this. I know it's um, troubling. Uh, I know your family's breathing down your neck probably and asking, hey, is there you know, something we need to know? And it, it, it's, it's really rough on a couple when, when this is the situation that they're in, not to mention the expense and 
and so forth. Um, the short answer to your question is yes, foods have a huge effect in a couple of ways. Uh, let's talk about men first. Uh, researchers uh, went to uh, fertility clinics and they have tracked what men eat. And then they looked at their sperm counts and you look at it three ways. You look at sperm, the absolute number of sperm, and then you look at the shape of the sperm. Are they healthy or are they uh, sort of misshapen? And third, do they move? I mean, do they swim straight or not? And so those are the three things that we look at, the, the number, the morphology and the motility. And what the researchers found was that there is a food that will reduce all three of those. And you know what it is? It's cheese. Now, that may sound surprising because Americans love cheese. Your average American eats, what, you know, 30 pounds of it a year, practically. Um, cheese has estrogens in it, female sex hormones. And if you want something that is going to hurt a man's sperm production, you found it. Uh, so I would get away from dairy products completely. And it's not just cheese, but yogurt and, and milk. And they all have estradiol that comes from the cow. Uh, the dairy industry will, set, will try to say, well, it's not very much. It's enough. Um, and it has noticeable effects. Okay. Uh, shifting to the situation for a woman. Um, every month, your uterus gets ready for reproduction. And it does it by thickening up the endometrial lining. That's the lining of the uterus. And that lining can thicken up too much if there's too much estrogen in your blood. And that can then lead to cramps at the end of the cycle. So that's what we've been talking about there. But we can also see all kinds of ovulatory disturbances that come as a result of, of diet changes too. What would I do? Um, in both cases, men, women, Get away from animal products completely. You do not need, do not want dairy and its hormones in your diet. Um, you don't need cholesterol and fat and these kinds of things. What you do want is plant foods that are high in fiber, low in fat. That means beans, grains, vegetables, and fruits. At Tufts University, back in 1994, researchers looked at how high fiber, low fat foods could stabilize hormones. What they were thinking about was reducing breast cancer risk but it's the same kind of changes that we want for uh, tackling fertility issues. Last couple things I wanna say. There are some specific conditions that affect fertility. One is PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. Chuck, you have um, had Allison Tierney on uh, the program to talk about her incredible uh, uh, situation with that and sharing her experience both as a dietitian and as a woman with PCOS and how she conceived um, after changing her diet but also endometriosis um, is a condition where many women find that it not only causes pain, but affects their fertility too. By the way, all these are covered in your body and balance. Please do uh, get it from your library and have a look at the relevant chapter, put it to work and see how it works for you. Let's look ahead a little bit and hopefully Anastasia and her husband will find her themselves in this position in the not too terribly distant future. Take a question from Sherry's 400 at 1210. It says, uh, I recently found out that I'm pregnant. Which foods are the heavy hitters that I should focus on to achieve healthy hormone production for the baby? Oh, that's great. Um, well, first of all, congratulations. Um, and, and secondly, thank you for thinking of, of good nutrition, not just for yourself, but for your baby. Um, when you are pregnant, everybody's going to butt into your life and they'll say, don't forget you're eating for two. And they're going to shove all kinds of food your way. <laughs> Look at them in the eye and say, yes, but one of us is really small. So we don't need to be having undue weight gain. 
Um, what we need is the healthy diet that brought us here, which is vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans or beans and other legumes. Okay. Don't forget to take your prenatal vitamins. This is not optional. This is essential. Part of that is vitamin B12. You need it. So does your baby. Um, and you can continue taking vitamin supplements after you give birth and during lactation. Your baby's going to continue to need a healthy diet, and that's going to come from you. And the supplementation is an important part of it. Let's switch gears now and take a question from Lana at 1214. Wants to know how low should our cholesterol levels be? She says her last blood work showed she had 75, 76 for LDL and HDL. Wondering whether she should be shooting for even lower numbers than that. I think you could take those numbers and sell them on eBay. People would love those. Um, those are great numbers. Um, just kidding about selling them. Um, <laughs> But uh, yes, uh, if you look at a lab slip and it'll say your total cholesterol should be below 200 or something like that. Um, and they'll say your LDL should be below about 100. Those are, those are good numbers. You're right, lower is better. But once you're in the range of about 75 for your LDL or bad cholesterol, I mean, that's great. It's probably better than your doctor's level. Um, and uh, with regard to HDL or good cholesterol, we've, we've gone through a change here. We used to have the idea that we would really want to boost that HDL, and that was a whole lot better. Uh, science has really taken a much dimmer view of that because uh, methods used to raise HDL end up not helping the heart at all. So focus on the LDL. Your focus is right, and your number is terrific. Let's go back to soy momentarily. Take a question from Luro1218. Should people with thyroiditis limit the amount of soy they eat? We don't know the answer to that. Um, for the most part, uh, soy gets a not guilty verdict here, but there are a couple things to think about. The first thing is if you're on medication for low thyroid, you're on say Synthroid or some other supplement, don't take soy or any food, doesn't matter what it is, don't take any food for a couple hours before you take your pill and about an hour after the pill. Um, in other words, take your thyroid supplement on an empty stomach, that's number one. If you take it with food, you're, gonna, you're not going to absorb it the, the full amount and you're going to run borderline low. Your doctor will ask what's going on. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is people have looked at diets that are really high in soy and wondered if they were affecting people's thyroid function. And for the most part, the answer is no. However, there was a study some years ago that suggested if, if women, and they didn't see this in men, if I'm recalling correctly, but they did see it in women, if they were precariously kind of low in thyroid hormone already, uh, they were borderline hypothyroid. For some reason, a few of the women who were having more soy seemed to dip further into hypothyroidism. Um, the best conclusion that we have come to is that soy is fine, but make sure your thyroid gland is, you're taking good care of it um, uh, no matter what. And the ways to do that are number one, make sure you have iodine in your diet. We don't think about that very much, but if you don't have any iodine in your diet, you can't make, can't make thyroid hormone. Um, why would anyone run low? Because um, back when we were kids, we were consuming iodized salt. That's, you know, the Morton salt cylinders that have the girl in the umbrella. Um, that's iodized salt. But as we get older, we're avoiding salt because we don't want to have high blood pressure. So we're not getting the iodine that way or we're choosing um, Himalayan salt 
or sea salt or kosher salt that may not be iodized at all. So your thyroid is saying, you know, think about my needs for iodine. Where else can you get it? Uh, you can get it from seaweeds, uh, sea vegetables like nori and wakame and so forth, or you could just take a supplement. If you supplement, don't go crazy with it. The amount you need is 150 micrograms, not grams, not milligrams. It's 150 micrograms. That's it. Uh, if you go to a health food store, it's typically a kelp-derived formulation. But uh, but if, if you do that and your thyroid is being taken care of, um, and if you're on a low-fat vegan diet, we think that the addition of soy is probably inconsequential with regard to the thyroid. You mentioned endometriosis just a moment ago. T. Lemons writes in at 1221, what food should be avoided when diagnosed with endometriosis and should any other lifestyle changes be made? Wondering how much exercise also plays a role there. Okay, great question. Um, at the risk of, of sounding a little self-promotional, please open the chapter on endometriosis in your body and balance. And there I'm gonna share the story of Catherine Lawrence, who, if you have not heard of Catherine, she's an amazing person. Uh, she was uh, in the Air Force, sent over to Iraq in 2003, and when she came back, um, she dipped maybe a little bit too much into some of the foods she missed when she was overseas, and uh, including a lot of dairy and a lot of cheese, and she ended up with a pretty bad case of endometriosis, which she then reversed with what? With exactly the kind of diet we've been talking about to get hormones into better balance. Wait, how could that work? Endometriosis just means that the endometrium, the endometrial layer, that's the, the, the thin inside layer of the uterus. The endometrial cells, for some reason, aren't staying in the uterus anymore. They're sneaking out and they're going all around the abdomen and they're implanting on your intestinal tract, on your ovaries, on the fallopian tubes. They cause terrible pain because they expand and they bleed and they scar. Um, and they can lead to infertility. And this was, this was her situation. But with her diet, she was able to, to get it under control. What we believe happens is that when you're on a plant-based diet, very low in fat, high in fiber, the estrogen level in your body comes down to where it's supposed to be, the right balance. That takes the heat off the endometrial cells. They stop flourishing so much and you return to normal. But don't take my word for it. Let your doctor know that you're making a diet change and do two things. No animal products at all. And keep oils really low. And you've heard me say that about four times in today's program. But that means keeping oils low means get a nonstick pan and cook with that, not with added oils. And for now, skip the fatty foods like the nuts and peanut butters and, and guacamole and things like that. Keep the fat really low. Do this for a few cycles and see if you don't start feeling a whole lot better. Okay, this is a phenomenal question from Unbreakably Me, and I think, Dr. Barnard, anytime somebody switches to a whole food plant-based diet to improve their health, well, oftentimes, their number one goal is to lose weight. And Unbreakably Me, 1222, wants to know, how long does it take to lose weight on a vegan, low-fat, high-carb diet? About 15 minutes. <laughs> um, it, your, your body changes starting right away. Um, and, and, and here's, here's what I mean. Um, let's say you're eating um, roast beef or chicken wing. That is a mixture of protein and fat, and every gram of fat in it has nine calories. Let me just say that one more time. Every gram of fat has nine calories. Okay, now here it is. It's almost uh, 1230 on the East Coast. 
um, I'm going to switch to a plant-based diet. So if I pick grains or beans or vegetables or fruits, they don't have much fat in them. So all that nine calories per gram food is, is gone. I'm getting carbohydrate, which makes people nervous if they read fad books, but carbohydrate is only four calories per gram. So you're making that switch and that switch occurs right when you're eating the meal. Your body is now absorbing fewer calories and the weight loss, it starts now. Now it goes gradually. So you could stand on the scale, but I would suggest weighing yourself maybe once a week. And the typical weight loss adds up to about maybe between a half pound and a pound per week. It's more than that if you've got a lot of weight to lose. And if you don't have any weight to lose, you don't, you don't lose any weight. But your body tends to, to give off that uh, the extra fat. It's, it starts on day one. Well, so let's now take a question from Tamar, who is confused about this whole diet thing. And frankly, aren't we all? Uh, Tamar says, does insulin store fat every single time it is released from the pancreas? I've been reading up on the keto diet and they talk a little bit about this. Goes on to ask, if so, how does a person actually lose weight then while eating a plant-based diet? Thank you for asking that question. Let me try to make it real simple. Um, your pancreas makes insulin. The insulin goes to your muscle cells and your liver cells and your fat cells. And it does help with storing glucose. Also helps you store protein. As that may sound strange, but the amino acids uh, get a, a helping hand with, with insulin too. Here's the thing. Uh, you are right that if you have too much insulin in your blood, that can make it harder to lose weight. And so the book you've read says, well, foods that trigger a big insulin response are going to interfere with weight loss. And, and so that must mean um, sugar or starches. And, and that's as far as the book goes. Well, what the people who wrote that book didn't think about was back more than 20 years ago, researchers have looked at it, what they call the insulin index. That's a number for how much um, insulin is being produced by certain foods that you might eat. To everybody's surprise, fish causes a bigger insulin release than popcorn and fish causes a bigger insulin release than than pasta and if you have beef beef uh really causes the insulin insulin release that's maybe about the same as brown rice so it's these high protein foods that do the same kind of thing but here's what's really most important we've been talking about getting away getting away from fat when you do that the fat that has been building up in your muscle cells and building up in your liver cells starts to go away. And when that fat starts to dissipate from your cells, then the insulin that you have works that much better. So you eat a meal, your insulin comes into your blood to help you store the nutrients that are in it. If there's not a lot of fat in your cells because you haven't been eating fat, your insulin can do its work and go away and leave you alone. If your cells are filled with fat because you've been eating salmon and chicken and beef and fried stuff, if your cells are filled with fat, the insulin just can't do its job very well. It attaches to the cell, but it can't work through that oil slick. And your body makes more insulin and more insulin and more insulin and more insulin trying to overcome that. So you're right at thinking about, I wanna reduce my insulin, insulin amount in my blood. The way to do that, plant-based, low-fat diet. It helps the cells to get rid of that fat, allows your insulin to work a whole lot better and, and stops that extra secretion of insulin that you don't want. 
You know, Dr. Barnard, on the show, we often talk about the possibility of reversing diabetes or reversing heart disease, but we haven't really spoken too much about fatty liver disease. And that brings us to Jennifer's question at 1224. Wants to know whether it's possible to reverse fatty liver disease with a high fiber vegan diet and potentially even avoid having surgery. Oh my goodness sakes. Um, first of all, thank you for that question. Really important and, and a very, very common condition that, that doctors are really kind of have been a little bit slow to, to think about, but it's really important. And the answer is yes. Um, we did a study that we talked about some uh, in an earlier episode where we brought people in, put them on this diet, exactly the diet we're talking about, where we get the animal fat out of the diet, keep oils pretty low. And then the participants who were here in Washington, D.C. and changing their diet got on the Amtrak train. And they went up to New Haven, Connecticut, where our partners at Yale University put their bodies, put, put, put the participants into a, a big magnet. It's a magnetic resonance. If you ever had a, an MRI for a twisted ankle or something like that, that's the machine. Through magnetic resonance spectroscopy, we measured liver fat. That's right. And people had accumulated a lot of liver fat. And as they change their diet, it just goes down and down and down and down and down. And that starts very fast. It starts as soon as you begin the diet. And by the time it's been eight or 10 or 12 weeks, the, the drop is significant and it just keeps going. So um, put it to work. Don't cancel your doctor's appointment. Let your doctor monitor your progress, but do start a healthy plant-based uh, diet and see how you do. Ah, man, wouldn't it be so great if we just had ready access when we're making big changes to our lives and we expect these results right away? If we could get that ready access to those numbers that you were just talking about, you know, so we could see those numbers start to come on down immediately, even on those days when you might be frustrated that the scale isn't budging quite as much as you would like. But, you know, I love the way that you have just said twice now on the show today uh, when it comes to improving your health, that it starts right away. It's not a matter of how much will I lose in a week or how much will I lose over 30 days or, you know, how long does it take me to reverse heart disease? Your health begins to improve right away. And that is such an important message. I will never forget back. This was the late 1980s. I flew out to California to meet Dr. Dean Ornish, who at the time was studying how diet could affect heart disease. And he brought in people who had severe heart disease. They, they were in the hospital for it. They'd all had angiograms and you could see the tiny trickle of blood that would get through to their coronary arteries. They had chest pain, angina. His was a year long study to see what the effect of diet and a healthy lifestyle with exercise and stress reduction and not smoking, the effect that that would have. And, and then he tracked them for an additional five years altogether. Well, I happened to have the opportunity to meet and interview the research participants. And what I was struck by was even though the, the initial study was a year, I noticed that they all said to just virtually every single person said, my chest pain was gone. I said, how long did it take? And it didn't take a year. It took maybe four weeks, five, six weeks. And I thought, good heavens, think what the, what the diet and lifestyle is doing, that it can go into the arteries and start sort of clearing away that accumulation of junk that's clogging the arteries enough that the chest pain is gone in just a matter of weeks. So yeah, um, numbers are good to follow, but your body will reward you uh, surprisingly fast. 
All right, we only have a few minutes remaining, so let's go rapid fire and try to knock out three more questions. The first one is from our friend uh, Bulent, uh, the the bodybuilding opera singer, amazing guy. Uh, wants to know, Dr. Barnard, whether you know if the iodine that's found in maca is equal to the iodine that's found in sea vegetables. I don't know. I'm going to have to. All right, let's make a note of that, and we're going to come back to that next week. We're going to look at it. We're going to give you an intelligent answer. We'll come back to it. Okay, fair enough. So stand by for that one, my friend. Uh, Laura, wondering, can a plant-based diet help with psoriasis? Yes, it can. Um, psoriasis is one of these conditions where the body is is reacting badly to something, and that something could be certain proteins in the food. Uh, don't take my word for it. Eliminate the animal products completely. Keep oils low see how you do. If the psoriasis clears up, uh, you will not be alone. Many, many people have that experience. There are some, a few people who go further and they might eliminate other foods like gluten. But uh, for many people, just the plant-based diet really helps them. And when you ask them, was there a particular food that you thought was most responsible for your flare-ups? It's, it's dairy that they put their fingers on, finger on the most. All right. Final question is the fun question comes to us from Instagram. My plea for plants. Awesome name there. Wants to know, Dr. Barnard, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> you know, everybody does this in, in, a, in a different way. And I've got a couple of kind of go-to breakfasts. Um, one of the things that I always have is a big bowl of oatmeal. I'll just bowls, uh, boil up some old-fashioned oats. And I got to tell you, when I was a kid, we used that as a reason to throw cream and sugar and everything on top. And somehow as time's gone on, I just have it plain. But I will sometimes precede that um, with some other things. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to have bacon or sausage, but I will sometimes grill up some tempeh or some tofu and I'll grill up a lot of it and keep it in the fridge and pull it out and zap it. And if you take some grilled tofu, Sprinkle on a little ginger, a little nutritional yeast, a little soy sauce. Very delectable. Sounds frightening to people who never had it, but you're going to find it really enjoyable. If you get some tempeh, T-E-M-P-E-H, um, you get it from the store. It's kind of not much taste. Marinate it in soy sauce for five seconds. Throw it in a nonstick pan, grill both sides, and it's kind of the equivalent of sausage or bacon. What these foods are, the tofu and the tempeh, they're high in protein but it's a healthy plant-based protein with no animal fat, no cholesterol. You have that first, have your starchy food second, and you're gonna feel mentally balanced throughout the day. Thank you so very much for being here, Dr. Barnard. Look forward to doing this again with you soon. You bet, thanks, John. A link to register for the Fight Hot Flashes with Food series is in the episode notes. And don't forget to join us for The Exam Room Live every Wednesday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. We're live on YouTube and on Facebook. Join us because that is your best opportunity to ask experts like Dr. Barnard your question. You can also send me your questions ahead of time. Send me a message on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Chuck Carroll WLC. And you can find links to both accounts in the episode notes as well. You know... We just wrapped up our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series with Dr. Christy Funk, but now there is a new study about a popular food that looks to be quite the cancer fighter. And for details, let's head to the exam room news desk. Breast cancer survivors could do well to snack on a handful of nuts. 
New research shows that nuts help to lower the risk of breast cancer recurrence and death in survivors, according to a new study published in the International Journal of Cancer. Researchers compared nut consumption with cancer survival in nearly 3,500 breast cancer survivors as part of the Shanghai Breast Cancer Survival Study. It turns out those who ate the most nuts improved their overall survival and had a lower rate of recurrence compared to those who ate fewer nuts. According to researchers, these associations were strongest among survivors with earlier stages of breast cancer. Today's episode of The Exam Room has been brought to you by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Greg Ryder's love for animals was unrivaled, and today, that fund in his honor is dedicated to supporting organizations just like the Physicians Committee, organizations that share the same passion, that same love that Greg had, through animal rescue efforts and by promoting a vegan lifestyle and wildlife conservation efforts. Right now, I encourage you please to visit the Gregory Ryder Fund online at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. And there you can learn more about who Greg was. You can also learn about animal issues and subscribe to their newsletter. And you can find a link to do all of that right now in the episode notes. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for helping us raise our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.